0: All right, please, John chapter 6, we have got an awful lot to go through. I'm slightly nervous of the length of this message. John chapter 6, and we're going to read together from verse 41 through to the end of verse 71. Now, this is God's word. So this is the most important moment in any service because we're about to be addressed by God. And in chapter 6, verse 41, this is what happens. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. But there are some of you who do not believe. But Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, once again, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Our Father, as we read... In these words, you are the one that opens eyes and draws to the sun. And so, Lord, I, I ask of you in this moment, would you open eyes then and draw us once again to the sun? Lord, it is clear in Scripture that this is, this is what you do. This is your act. You are sovereign. You are the one that in a moment can open blind eyes. So, Lord, do your work in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the main reasons that we preach straight through books at Sovereign Grace Church is because when we do that, when we actually take whole books of the Bible and actually preach through them, it encourages us to to look really at what God has to say right the way through the book rather than picking parts and specific parts and and splitting them up that are maybe easier to understand or they're just the leader's favourites. And so I think there is a place for topical preaching. I think when a pastor is trying to serve the people before him, I think he should, on occasions, teach through topically. But I think most of the time, we should, as a band of brothers together, as pastors, preach through books of the Bible, because it is then that we can't avoid things. (laughs) I mean, honestly, I don't know often what I'm preaching the week after, apart from the text, because I haven't really studied it yet. And yet, what happens then is, as a pastor, you get to hear from God's Word rather than something that I would like to tell you, because it's, well, I'm just bound by the text, so let's preach the text, and let's faithfully explain to people what is taking place, rather than you hearing my preferences or different things like that. But one of the challenges of preaching through a book of the Bible in this way is, it is inevitable that we then come across passages that are hard to understand, that are mysterious, sometimes that are controversial and that is the case with this text before us today you see most of it is joyfully simple to understand it's dead easy and the guys have have done it over the last few weeks they've helped us see that jesus is the bread of life he is the one that came to die in our place and through him then we can have satisfaction in him knowing that he will sustain us and that he will keep us to the end that is really the whole point of the chapter and yet in verse forty-four. There is absolute controversy. Look again. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That, right there, is the doctrine of sovereign grace. It is the doctrine of election. It's the truth that God chose us. It outlines the simple and yet important truth that the reason why any of us are ultimately here is because God in all grace came after us and drew us. I've called this message then the certainty of sovereign grace. And I'm aware as we look at sovereign grace, as we look at election through verse 44, election inevitably inspires questions. It inevitably inspires many questions. It inevitably inspires many, many, many questions. There are difficulties with this. There are mysteries with this. There are challenges with this. And yet, without doubt, it is the doctrine that we find ourselves as a local church hemmed in by in verse 44. This week on Tuesday, um, I started actually preparing for this message, particularly because I was going away with the guys on Thursday. I wanted to give Tuesday and Wednesday to this task of preaching. And I started to look through verse 41 through 71, and I spent a lot of time in lots of different verses and was trying to put together a, a message on all the verses. And it got to about half past three, which is quite late in the day on a Tuesday of your preparation day, and I had absolutely nothing. Nothing was becoming clear. I just thought, you know, this is, there's so much here. There's, I, I, had some, I had four points of how we could see that he's the bread of life and how, how good that is. And had got to 3.30, and I, and I actually phoned Mike Parsonage and just said, mate, I... I feel hemmed in by the Lord to verse 44. What do you think? And he said, sounds good. So I said, well, I should. sounds like I should preach on verse 44. I've got an hour and a half left of my day. I better start. But I've really felt the Lord constraining me to this mysterious topic of the certainty of sovereign grace because I think it's one that can cause confusion. And I think it is here in this text, like everything else in John, to bring life. And yet often, this is a topic that brings confusion and mystery, so we try and avoid it. But it's meant to function as a life giver, as something that brings life to the souls of of Christians. So I've got three simple points today. Election defined, election questioned, and elections effects. But before we really go through it and take our time studying sovereign grace, there's a couple of things we need to understand. Firstly, we need to understand That as we study the topic of sovereign grace, we are coming to a topic that is shrouded in mystery. And it is. It's, It's challenging and it has some difficulties attached to it. We are diving ourselves in as a local church to the deep end of the theological pool today. Okay, We are getting right in there. We are right over our heads without any question. But even as we swim under the depths, the reality is there are things in here that are mysterious in nature and shrouded with secrets. And they always will be. And if you're like me, that's a problem. Because I hate secrets. (laughs) I do. I hate them. There's nothing worse than when you go into a room and you're hanging out and there's a group of people. And and they're clearly talking. They're clearly engaging about, about something exciting. And you walk in and it's just... If that's really awkward, like, what were you talking about? Oh, nothing much, nothing. You're like, this is horrendous. You're keeping secrets from me. What's going on? Oh, nothing, no big deal. I hate that. I like to be involved in everything. I like to be in every, every frame of life. I like to, what, what's going on? Oh, nothing. I hate little secrets. And yet today we come to a divine secret. Something that God says, I'm going to show you this much, but the rest is a secret. Deuteronomy 29.29 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There are things in Scripture that are revealed, but there are things in Scripture that are shrouded in mystery and indeed secret. And today we are going to be touching upon secret things, things that are shrouded in mystery. And folks, as Christians, that should not surprise us. And it shouldn't surprise us because... God is a lot bigger than us, quite simply. So we shouldn't assume then that we can grasp every single part of how he thinks and how he works in wisdom. J. Rodman Williams, in his full Bible commentary, says, because all Christian doctrine relates to God, who is ultimately beyond our comprehension, there will inevitably be some element of mystery. There will be some element of mystery that cannot be reduced to human understanding. Nevertheless, within these limits, the theological effort must be carried on. That is the case. The theological effort must be carried on. We must seek to discern what has he revealed for us, because in the revelation that will bring life in his name. But there's also secret things where we should cease. We should stop. John Calvin on the topic of election said it this way. Love it. So the best rule of sobriety is not only in learning to follow wherever God leads, but also when he makes an end of teaching to cease from wishing to be wise. I think that is so well said. There is a time, particularly under the doctrine of election and the mystery of election, where we say, you know what, we understand this much, but this is shrouded in mystery. And we must, in humility then, cease from being to be, trying to be wise. He hasn't shown us. We don't know because he's God and he's above and beyond us. And so we need to understand by way of background, we're not going to get to the end of this and have everything wrapped up all night, nice and neat and tidy and just think, I get it now. It's, it's fully clear. <laughs> There's still going to be some element of mystery. Second thing by way of background that I want you to understand is that although this doctrine names us as a local church and names us as a family of churches, it does not define us. It does not and must not ever define us as a local church. What must always define us as a local church is Christ and Him crucified. What must always define this local church that I will, I will scream from the rooftops while I have the privilege of being your senior pastor and I will ensure when I'm not your senior pastor that another senior pastor is ready and equipped to also shout from the rooftops is that Christ and Him crucified must remain central in this local church is all about it's about the gospel it's about the gospel working into our lives in knowledge in application and in proclamation so this doctrine doesn't define us by god's grace i think the gospel defines us and by god's grace the gospel must always define us and so for us as a local church we don't believe for a moment that if somebody fails to believe in election that they're not a christian that's nonsense Somebody can not believe this and be completely a Christian. I grew up with about 60 of them until I was about 18. I grew up in a local church where they would have never agreed with what I'm trying to preach here. But they loved Jesus and they told people about Jesus. They were without question Christians. And so I don't want us to think for a moment that we think that this is so important that if you don't understand it, you can't be a Christian. That's not the case. You're a Christian by responding to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Likewise, I don't want us to think for a moment that we only offer our hands in unity with other believers that believe in election. Because that's not true either. We, we don't. We want to be wider than that. Mr. Spurgeon, one of my historical heroes, says, We give our hand to every man who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, be he what he may or who he may. The doctrine of election, like the great act of election itself, is intended to divide not between Israel and Israel, but between Israel and the Egyptians. Not between saint and saint, but between saint and the children of the world. A man may be evidently God's chosen family, and yet though, though elected may not believe in the doctrine of election. I hold that there are many savingly called that do not believe in effectual calling, and yet there are a great many who persevere to the end who do not believe the, the doctrine of final perseverance. We do not set their fallacies down to any willful opposition to the truth as it is in Jesus but simply to an error in their judgments. And we pray that God will correct that. We hope that if they think us mistaken too, that they will reciprocate the same Christian courtesy. Listen. And when we meet around the cross, which defines us, we hope that we shall then forever feel that we are one in Christ Jesus. Amen to that. What a magnanimous, big-hearted man. And I want to emulate that as your pastor. I want the leadership team to emulate that. I want us as a local church to emulate that. Where there are other local churches that surround themselves around the gospel of Jesus Christ, we want to show our arm and support to them in fully ways. Do you believe in election or not? That's not my issue. Are you going to preach Christ and crucified? Yes, then you have our full support. And It's the same with members here. We call Sovereign Grace Church, so does every member have to believe in sovereign grace? No. I think you would find it very hard here because we really do and I think you would struggle but do you have to you don't you don't have to I think it would be difficult but you don't have to because this doesn't define us the gospel does but it is dear to us it's something that's important it's something that we treasure and so let's begin with election defined what really is election all about how do we really clarify what election is. We see it in verse 44. No one comes to the me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We're talking about God's choice there. So how does it work? Well, J.R. Packer says it this way. He says the verb elect means to select or choose out. The biblical doctrine of election then is that before creation, God selected out of the human race foreseen as fallen those whom he would redeem Bring to faith, justify and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. This defined choice is an expression of free and sovereign grace for it is unconstrained and unconditional, not merited by anything that is in its subjects. God owes sinners no mercy of any kind, only condemnation. So it is a wonder and a matter of endless praise that He should choose to save any of us. Doubly so, when his choice involved the giving of his own son. Would we never forget that? The giving of his own son. To suffer as a sin bearer for the elect. What is election? It boils down to this. That, that God chose you. That God in divine wisdom and unfathomable grace, chose us. And this is a doctrine that runs throughout Scripture. John Piper, in his book, The Pleasures of God, says that this doctrine appears to be on every third page. And although I've not personally counted it all, I think he's probably about right. The doctrine of election and the fact that God chose us, whether we like it or not, is a secondary issue. It is very evidently there in Scripture. And it runs really all the way through Scripture. We see it here in verse 44 of John chapter 6. We see it in verse 37. Look again. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So you get the premise that all that the Father gives me. He's giving some. And out of that some, I will lose none of them. So you see God's choice in action. We see it over the page of verse 65. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me Unless it is granted him by the Father. So no one can actually come unless the Father grants it. We see it then in John chapter 8, and John chapter 10, and John chapter 12, and beyond. We see it all the way through the Gospels this premise that this is God's pursuit. This is his pursuit of a people for salvation. We see it then in the book of Acts. We get to Acts chapter 2, for example. And you find people asking, you know, how can I get saved? What must I do to get saved? And all the Arminians think, this is, this is good. This is good. It's all about us. And so they read the bit that says, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. It's all about you. Problem is, the verse did end there. Peter goes on to say, you know what? Repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. For this is for you, your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call to Himself. That's election. That's sovereign grace. All whom the Lord will, the Lord will call. The Lord's work. We see it then in, all the way through the letters. They're actually written more often than not to the elect in Ephesus, to the chosen in Thessalonica. Have you ever wondered what is that all about? Well, he, he's referring here to sovereign grace, the doctrine that there are individuals who God in grace has saved. So we see all the way through the letters about election, about God's choosing. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, it is absolutely stone cold clear, where it becomes very clear that in grace, the reason why you are here is because before there was even time, God chose you. Election is all the way through the Bible. God's choice is all the way through the Bible. But that raises some serious questions, does it not? That's my second point, election questioned. I grew up in a effectively a Pentecostal church prior to being 18 years old. And so I remember when I first started to hear the doctrines of grace um, being taught at about 19, 20 years old, I hated them <laughs> with a passion. I just thought it was so inappropriate. There are so many secondary questions that come out of this. That just Are we all robots then? This is just, this is just awful. God's just, we're all just trying to clamber into heaven, and God's saying, okay, I love you, but not you, and I love you, and not you. Is this how it works? It's just horrendous. So why bother praying for people? Because God's just going to do what he wants to do. There are so many questions that certainly for me, as I started to hear about the Doctrine of Grace, I really didn't like. And it was Pete Greasley teaching it, my old pastor. I remember rocking up to Life Group and saying, Pete Greasley has lost the plot. What is he on about that God chooses us? This is horrendous. And my life group leader, who I really trust, he said, well, I think he's telling the truth. Like, oh, it's got to you as well, hasn't it? This is just horrendous, horrendous stuff. But but the issues for me were, were ones of questions. How does this work then if? If God chose us, then, then how does it work? Two questions that I want to look at in our time this morning that I think are the most common questions. First one is this, you know, so God chose us, hang on then, number one, didn't I choose him? I mean, didn't I? Didn't you? And for so many of us in this room, you can probably no doubt remember the day when you became a Christian. Maybe for some of you, you are at a, a rally, and somebody invited you down to the front at the end if you wanted to follow Jesus and somebody prayed with you, and you in that moment remember choosing to follow Jesus Christ. No one coerced you into it. You chose it all by yourself. Maybe for others of you, maybe you're children, and you're at some type of family camp or youth camp, and you remember the specific moment where you decided of your own free will to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then you've got a pastor standing here saying, well, hang on, no, God chose you. And you think, no, experientially... I remember it well. Thanks for playing. I chose him. I definitely chose him. I remember doing this. I remember choosing God. And so we argue with our experience. But we must argue theologically. And the point then as you look at election is simply this. Didn't I choose God? Yes. You did. And if you didn't, you would still not be saved to this day. For Romans is very clear. Romans 9 says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, whosoever will. This is open to absolutely everybody. And you, by your own free will, at the right time, chose Jesus Christ, chose to put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And if you had not done that, you still would not be saved to this day. You are not a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home. Becoming a Christian requires a decision to follow Jesus Christ. So didn't I choose God? Yes, you fully did. But you only chose God because he first chose you. You only in that moment responded to him because of his prior work in your life. You only came to Jesus in that moment of your life because of the Father's prior work, choosing and, as it says here in verse 44, drawing you to the Saviour. Without that drawing, you wouldn't be here. And so the Bible, without doubt, biblically defined, salvation involves both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It involves both There is a sovereign element, and there is also a human responsibility element. People say that you have to choose between the two. Well, you can't, because they're both in the Bible. They're like train tracks. Both things are important. So I grew up just thinking it was all human responsibility, and I think many people do. And then you hear about Calvinism, you hear about sovereign grace, and you think that's no good, because you think sovereign grace, therefore, means there's no point in doing anything. But that's hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism says, therefore, it's not whosoever will, it's just all God, unless not even by the prayer and reaching out, because there's no need. That's not sovereign grace. Sovereign grace says both are true. Human responsibility is absolutely true, whosoever will. And yet, you only chose God because of a prior work of grace in your life. He came after you. And I found that very difficult as a young man because I was arrogant and I liked to think it was all me. And I remember my pastor saying, you know what, let's just look together at Ephesians 2. And he said, David, this was your life. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. So tell me how in that moment, if you were dead in your transgressions and sins, you chose Christ. well, I can't. Exactly. It's sovereign grace. It's a prior work of His grace in your life. You were dead. You were blind. You were running away from God at full tilt. And yet in grace, He came after you and stopped you and opened your eyes to the glories of the gospel. And then in that moment, in that ordained specific time, you, by your own free will, prior to any knowledge of what God is doing in your life, said, I believe in you. And you think you've done it all yourself. You haven't, because by behind the scenes, the Father has come and grappled you and drawn you close to the Son and said, look, look at Him. And you said, I I can't believe this. Did you choose Christ? Yes. But only because God first chose you. And so in Scripture, both God's sovereignty and our responsibility are taught as absolute necessities in salvation. And yet, if you had to emphasize one over the other, the emphasis would have to be on God's sovereignty because you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Anthony Hakema, in the book Saved by Grace, says it this way He says, The decisive factor in determining who is to be saved from sin is not the decisions of the human beings concerned, but the sovereign grace of God. The determining factor. Though human decision does play a significant role in the process, we must therefore affirm both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, both God's sovereign grace and our active participation in the process of salvation. We can only do justice to biblical teaching if we firmly hold on to both sides of the paradox. But since God is the creator and we are his creatures, God must have the priority. Hence, we must maintain that the ultimate decisive factor in the process of our salvation is the sovereign grace of God. Charles Spurgeon then recounts his story of coming to this in the book, All of Grace. I know I've read it before, but enjoy it again. He says, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. (laughs) That was me too. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths, the doctrine of election in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan said, burned into my soul as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I'd grown all of a sudden from a babe to a man, that i had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found, been found once and for all the clue of the truth of God. One week night when I was sitting in the house of God... I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. The thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? Which triggers an internal conversation. Well, I sought the Lord, but how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should have not sought Him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek Him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures, but how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw. I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make my constant confession this, I ascribe my change wholly to God amen and amen my friends maybe you're here today and you grew up in a Christian home maybe you're here and you haven't long been a Christian maybe you're here and you've been a Christian a long time and up until this moment you've always thought you did it by yourself well here's the truth of scripture you didn't prior to your choice was the sovereign choice of God in grace in grace coming after you and drawing you near. You're ultimately here because God chose you. And so if you imagine a huge cross standing as high as this ceiling with a big doorway in it, all we see on this side of the cross is whosoever will. And so we all go marching through. This is great. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And as I walk through the cross, I am without doubt saved saved by His grace alone, through faith alone. But then I get to the other side with my family, the bride of Christ, and I look back at the cross. This is what you see above the door. Chosen before the foundation of the earth. And then we want to run back and go, how does that work? Hang on. I remember choosing this side. It was all me. But now this side says it was all Him. Well, There's mystery involved. I have one of the only jobs in the entire world that I can say there's mystery involved. If you go to your mechanic and your car's not working, like the wheel is coming off, and he has it for the day, he studies it, and he goes, well, it's a mystery. (laughs) That's a depressing moment. You go to your dentist. My mouth is on fire. Can you help? I've got an abscess, and he looks in, and yeah, it's a mystery. that, That is not an encouraging moment. But you should be encouraged when your pastor says it is a mystery because as biblically defined, it is a mystery. But it's true. You're here because God chose you. Didn't you choose him? Yes. But only because prior to that, he chose you. He knew your name and he wanted to go after you. Because as verse 44 says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. They're not my words, they're the words of Christ. The second question then that I began to struggle with, and I think we can often struggle with, is well, if that's the case, then, then why me and not others? Because this sucks. I mean, it's great for me, but what about everybody else? How does, this, how does this operate? And I think for a long time in my life, this is why I was so angry with this. And it was a real stumbling block in my life because I just had this idea in my mind, a complete misunderstanding of the situation of what occurs within sovereign grace. I misunderstood what really happens behind the scenes in sovereign grace, and so I found the whole thing quite disturbing. I remember some years ago at Christchurch, Church, my, my home church, and we used to sing a song called, Haven't You Been Good? And it, there's a line in there that says, out of millions lost, thank you, Lord, for saving me. And 99% of the church is there just thinking, this is great. Yes. Out of millions lost, thank you, Lord, for saving me. And one one gentleman came to me at the end of the message, at the end of the well, at the end of the message, because actually the worship and the message had gone, and he came, and he was still angry about the worship. He was still angry about this line. How can you praise a God that says, Out of millions lost, thank you, Lord, for saving me? Why you? That is so arrogant, surely. How can you celebrate when you are the one but there are nine hundred and ninety nine thousand that did not get in? How can you celebrate this truth? Well, I think that man had the same misconception that I had earlier in my life. I think we have this idea often of sovereign grace that is misinformed. I remember C.J. Mahaney telling a story that's by Mark Webb that really, it changed my life in understanding what's happening in sovereign grace. The story goes as follows. After giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men and women who would be saved, receiving only the elect. I answered her in this vein, you misunderstand the situation. You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get in the door and God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, but not you. And you, but not you. And so on. But this is hardly the situation. God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men, without exception, are running in the opposite direction towards hell, as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and stops this one, and that one, and this one over here, and that one over there, and effectually draws them to him by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. Election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there, but keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. That kind of response, grounded, as I believe that is in in the scriptural truth, does put a different complexion on things, doesn't it? If you perish in hell, blame yourself, as it is entirely your fault. But if you should make it to heaven, credit god for that is entirely his work to him alone belong all praise and glory for salvation is all of grace from start to finish that is so helpful god is not standing at the doorway of heaven with men and women running towards him saying oh we want to get in he's saying well i love you not you I love you, I love not of you, I'm not interested in you, thanks for playing. but I love you, as if some disinterested God. He is standing at the doorway of heaven saying, whosoever will come to me, I want you all run to me and you may enter through my son into the heavenly home. But everybody, without fail, is an enemy of God and running away from him. Everyone, without fail, is running away from the Savior, rebellion against God, running headlong towards hell and pointing back now and again, not with joy and worship, but with accusation. And yet God, in grace, then runs from the doorways of heaven and grapples people to the crowd. and then draws them, in grace, to the Son. And then runs again and grapples another to the ground. And pulls them back to the sun and shows them the sun. No one is outside of heaven that is desperate to get in. That God is saying no to. But if God wasn't actively pursuing people. Heaven would, hell would just be filled. And heaven would be an empty place. Because we're dead in our transgressions and sins. Running away from him. The reality is is so different often to what we think it is you were running away from God and if he had not chose you you would have never chosen him and so the question should really not be why me and not others the question in grace really shouldn't be why just me out of millions lost, what about all the other millions? God, what are you doing? The question, I think, should be why me? Just why why me? Out of out of millions? You came after me. It's a staggering truth. It's not one that should cause us to run back to God and go, God, this is pathetic. All these people that you didn't adopt. It should cause us to go back to God on our knees. Say, Lord, why? Why me? This is staggering grace. Because I only chose you. Because you came after me. See, this doctrine, when seen correctly should have an effect in our lives. That moves us on to point three, elections effects. Jesus is not saying these words in verse 44 to try and cause great controversy in the people of God. He's not trying to put it out there to say, oh, this will confuse them. (laughs) And John is deliberately recording it in Scripture, particularly in the Gospel of John. Why? Why? So that through believing and seeing that Jesus is the Son of God, we may have life in his name. So everything that is penned in this verse relates to having life in Jesus Christ. So Jesus didn't say it to cause controversy. He said it to bring life. He wanted to care. He's trying to help. And I think election, properly understood, does bring life. Because it does indeed have effects. And there's four that I just want to quickly go through as we close. Here's the first. A correct understanding, I think, of sovereign grace. Number one, should bring a humility before God. Humility. you know, folks, in light of sovereign grace, Christians should be the most humble people that you have ever met in your entire life. In light of sovereign grace, in light of the truth that Jesus, in grace, and God came after us and drew you to the Son so that you could respond to him in grace, should make us the most humble people in the entire planet. Christians should be the people coming in on a Sunday morning, shaking their heads, staggered that I'm here, staggered that you'd, you'd come after me and wondering... How can this be? Mark Webb says, God intentionally designed salvation so that no man might boast of it. He didn't merely arrange it so that boasting would be discouraged or kept to a minimum. He planned it so that boasting would be absolutely excluded. And election does precisely that. It's so true. Election just nails it in the coffin for where we get excited thinking that it was all me. Election says... It wasn't. (laughs) Unless he had worked in you, you would have never chosen him. It should humble us. It should affect us. Mr. Spurgeon says, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should look upon me with such special love. See, folks, this is why, for me, I don't want us just to ascribe to the doctrine of sovereign grace as a local church. I don't want us to tick the box of theological doctrine and say, yep, got it, got it, understand it, thanks for playing, and then move on as if it doesn't affect us. I want us to revel in it and bathe in it and be so mesmerized by it because when you realize that out of millions lost, He chose you. If that doesn't affect our hearts, we haven't let it go from head to heart yet then. Because this changes everything. You mean I'm here because He chose me? Yes, that is the only reason. Wow, that's humbling. So it should have an effect of humility before God. Number two, it should have an effect of assurance from God. Not only humility before God, but assurance from God. I thought Brendan just did an outstanding message last week, particularly on the verse 37, where we just look at the fact that God's going to keep us. Verse 44 really relates into how it all started. See, if your life, Really is a book, and you were in control of the first page, i.e., the first page reads, Today I Chose Christ. That if you really are in control of the first page, I think you are in control of the last page. And so you can write on the last page, Today I rejected Christ. Game over. Because you control the start, you control the end. But that is not biblical. The reason why we can have so much assurance is because the first page of your book does not read, Today I chose Christ. The first page of your book reads, Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that's why the last page of your book reads verse 37. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He's the author. And so election properly understood and allowed to filter through and affect our lives. We should leave the room being affected that this is a story of grace. I will make it not because of myself. I will make it because I am in the grip of grace. And He holds me and will never let me go. And my story did not start with me. My story started before there was even time. And so will I make it? Yeah because He will hold me. I'm always kept secure and sustained by His grace because He started it too. Paul says it so well in Romans 8. He says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? or tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No! That is an emphatic no. He is pastoring the people in Rome. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because all those I predestined, He called. And all those He calls, He justifies. And all those He justifies, He will glorify. It's all of grace. Your salvation is all of grace. And that should bring assurance to our souls. Number three, it should produce hope in God. I think it is so easy to lose hope sometimes when we're trying to reach out to family or friends that seem a million miles away from anything we are talking about. It's so easy to lose hope and just think, you know what, I've told them ten times, it's just not going to happen don't think they're going to come to know the Lord. They're probably not chosen, so it's not going to work. It's so easy to lose hope when we desperately plead the Lord for the conversion of friends and family. Well, I think election should bring us great hope. I would argue that my background prior to 18, the premise was, if election is really true, then what's the point in praying? It seemed to make sense at the time. But now I believe if election isn't true, what's the point in praying? Because if God doesn't really choose, then why are you praying? Because God can't manipulate them anyway. It's just all their choice. So don't pray, because that would be unfair. Your election. It says, I can pray to a God who is sovereign, And He is sovereign not only of the ends. He is sovereign over the means. And so I'm going to pray with fresh passion because God may well use my prayer to bring about the salvation of my family member or my friend. So I'm going to pray with grace. I'm going to pray with enthusiasm. I'm going to pray with hope because I believe that the God of my salvation, although human sin is stubborn, it is not as stubborn as the sovereign grace of God. And when God opens eyes to a dead person, they cannot resist. It is sure calling. It is irresistible grace. And so, although I cannot argue anybody into the kingdom of God because my arguments are so pathetic and poor, if you saw me with an unbeliever, I'm pretty sure my tongue enlarges about four times over. I'm I'm just—it's not even making sense what I'm saying half of the time, and yet God in grace saves them. And you think, why is that? Because it's not about you. It's about. Election, properly understood, should cultivate hope in God. Because if they are the elect, they will be coming home. Because they have no power to stop it. Because that's irresistible grace. Because the Father, when He draws, they come. And number four, gratitude towards God. J.I. Packer says it this way, just to finish in fact, if the band could come up, that would be good. He says, To know that from eternity my Maker, for my sin, loved me and resolved to save me, though it would be at the cost of Calvary. To know that the Divine Son was appointed from eternity to be my Savior, and that in love He became man for me and died for me, and now lives to intercede for me, and will one day come in person and take me home. To know that the Lord who loved me and gave himself up for me and who came and preached peace to me through his messengers, has by his Spirit raised me from spiritual death to life-giving union and communion with himself and has promised to hold me fast and never let me go, this is knowledge that brings me overwhelming, overwhelming gratitude and joy. My friends, if you find within worship your heart is cold. I want to encourage you, mainline in the doctrines of grace for a while. Mainline in the truth of sovereign grace. Mainline in the truth of irresistible grace. Mainline into the truths of persevering grace. Dig deep into these topics because when the penny drops and it affects your heart, it is impossible to come in cold into the presence of God because you're so astounded that He chose you so astounded that your entire story wasn't you. It's all him. And so we have a bookshop that runs every two weeks. Any title that mentions the word grace in, that's a clue. Buy them all. Study them all. But revel in them all. Allow them. Do not move off these things until it affects your emotions. Because when it's real, It always affects our emotions. So allow these truths to filter into our lives because sovereign grace, when properly understood, should cause gratitude towards God. Listen, the nature of mysteries, which verse 44 is, is the still mysteries attached to it. And so we have to, as the quote that starts, we have to pursue things theologically and try and find out and see what God has revealed to us But as John Calvin says, where mysteries still occur, we have to say the path has ceased. And stop then trying to be wise in that. But what he has revealed is the ultimate reason why you're here is because God chose you. And so would that affect our hearts? And would humility and assurance and hope and gratitude then be the themes of Sovereign Grace Church? Let's pray. Father you are the giver of grace and there is not an individual in the room there is not one Christian in this building in this moment that has not been the recipient of sovereign grace Lord the story didn't start with us To consider that we were running away from you. You made us for your glory. You made us to find our identity and our joy and our worship in you. And yet we mocked you. We exchanged you as the creator for the created, believing that this would find satisfaction for us. And we ran headlong towards hell. Lord, if you hadn't interrupted our walk we would still be running towards hell so Lord thank you for divine interruptions thank you for wrestling our lives to the floor and drawing us to the glories of Calvary Lord would this truth affect us not only today would we always live in light of sovereign Christ? And would all glory as Mr. Packers says, All glory and gratitude therefore go to you.